Well, this is Alex Grant. Today's episode is brought to you by my new comic, Journey into Mexico, with Latin American artist Sebastián Guidobono, following the adventures of young T-Hax Tabaris, who wields the power of... El Fuego! During a very politically hot time in 1830s Mexico. Available in both English and Spanish on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Comixology, and other book outlets such as IndiePlanet.com. Cheers, and let's get started. Welcome back to part two of the Howard Chaikin interview here at the Comic Book Historian Podcast. I'm Alex Grand with my co-host Jim Thompson. Let's continue. Why did you pull away from Flag, both in terms of writing and of art, and then writing? I was bored. I was running out of interest. Well, that's a good answer. Um, now, were you making money on this? Yes. Comparatively? Well, relatively speaking, I wasn't doing great, but I was doing okay. And first, I first had great rates, and they were paying good rates, and I was, and I was generating a bit of money, a bit of secondary income. I had mentioned Dave Sim. Dave Sim on uh, in Comics Journal. Uh, once you left, was critical about that and that he said that you left because it wasn't you weren't self-publishing and that only only self-publishing at that time those were the people that cared about what they created that if i, I didn't read that but that sounds like bullshit to me <laughs> that had nothing to do with it you just were bored with the character yeah, I was. It was I was, time I was, to move I, on. I was part of the material i wanted to do something else the fact that jack kirby could do 50 issues of the fantastic four while he was doing other shit my god beyond me yeah it's it's, it's a lot and did you have Times Square in mind at that point? Yes. But you went to D.C. first. Well, yeah. No, but okay. I, there, no, I, I did. I did the first Times Square before I did the Shadow. Did you? Yep. Was it was it published before, or you just you did it before? I don't recall. It's been a long okay. enough time. All right. I don't remember. Uh, well, really we'll not. come back to Times Square. I, I, but I'm Alex, pretty, uh, I, I mean, I, I could be wrong. My time frame could be fucked up. I could be wrong. <laughs> so, but, but the, um, the, sh- the, sh- the Shadow was the first thing I did. Uh, my first California job. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was offered it at the San Diego convention that July, and I was drawing it in September of, two, of that year. Uh-huh. Uh, I literally was drawing the cover, which became the poster, as my, my belongings were being delivered a week late. I mean, the first thing I did was I took my drawing table and assembled it and was working on that poster while the moving men were still moving my shit into my house. So did that Jim Shooter incident get kind of bar you from DC as well for a little while? And no, how no, that... no, not at all. No, 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 just for the Marvel. Okay. Yeah. And then, um... and, and again, I mean, I and frankly, if I if I'd come back to Marvel with my hat in my hand, I'm sure I could have gotten something. Right there, you go. Tell us a bit. Did you read Shadow Pulps and things like that as far as research, or had you already done that? I'd read a couple of them. I didn't really care mm-hmm. about them. Right. I, re- I read I read the dossier to familiarize myself with the characters, you know, and and of course I antagonized you know the currently dead Harlan Ellison by my by by what I did with the material, you know, and 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 I think that a lot of old time Shadow fans are very unhappy with them, and I, you know, fine, if you don't like it, do your own. Yeah. I like it. I I, I read yeah. it. I liked it, but I wasn't attached to the older stuff. Right, and and I I mean the fact is I think they hired me. I mean, Giordano handed me, you know, buttonholed me on this at that San Diego show. And they expected me to carry on with what, what Kaluta and you know, O'Neill had been doing. And I had no interest in doing that. I was more interested in, in, the, in playing with the idea of a 19th century, early 20th century man stuck in late 20th century America with all of those ethos. I mean, one of the things that, that, that Harlan was upset about that I, that I portrayed him as a, you know, as a, as a misogynist and a bit of a, you know, of a homophobe and a racist, which frankly seemed to be the default position of any white man in the, 19, in the late 19th, early 20th century. Wait, yeah. who was that way? You're saying the shadow was that way? Yes. Yeah, okay, I see. 
I mean, come on. I mean, we, we, you know, contemporary chauvinism will, will, will occasionally impose contemporary attitudes on old material, but it doesn't make it, make it any realer. A white member of the WASP, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant ruling class in the United States in the time of, of Lamont Cranston, for example, would have been an anti-Semite, a racist, certainly a misogynist, and a homophobe, because those were all innate to white culture. Right. Sorry, you know, it's just, it just is. Well, as the series progressed, he got punished for it, not by you, but I remember right. he was, uh, when Carl <laughs> Baker was doing it, he well, got uh, they, they, decapitated they, 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 and was carried around in a box for the last yeah, that, half that, of the that, series. That, that, really, that really delighted the rest of the, rest of the Shadow fans out there. <laughs> <laughs> kind of took you off the hook almost. I, I, look, the fact is, I said at the time, I mean, the reason the Shadow was identified was as a 1930s pulp hero was because it had been canceled in 1949. If right. Superman and Batman had vanished from the landscape in 1949, they too would be regarded as nostalgia items. That material exists because of nostalgia. I tend to stand back from nostalgia is good nostalgia. Do what uh, you want to do with it, you know? Yes. Interesting. All right. And, then, and, and again, um, I, when, I, when I did the sequel to that, Midnight in Moscow, which is, also, which is a prequel to it, that last page where Lamont Cranston deserts Margot Lane, the guy's a twat. <laughs> huh. <laughs> Whose idea was it to make the shadow in the con- contemporary times? Was that yours? Or Mine. You, that was yeah, your I, idea. I said I, I said it would be a waste of time to do otherwise. Right, right. That's cool. The two volumes of Times Square. And Soon to be three. I was about to ask you before I even did anything else. That's, uh-huh. It's been out there talked about for so long, for like a decade or more. Well, the, la- actually... the, last, the last 12 pages of black and white artwork have been delivered. And I've got the first 36 pages of it in color. I've done. Uh, the lettering has been done on the first 24. Ken is working on pages 25 rather than 36 right now. We are trying to figure out a publishing strategy, as they say in the animated cartoons, as to how exactly we're going to bring it out when and uh, in what context and format. There's a number. There are a number of balls in the air we're, we're talking about right now. And, and I, don't know, I don't know. Who's publishing it? It'll be from Image. Okay. Um, is it, but you don't know yet if it's going to be in the size as the, the original two? It will probably not be because those days are gone. The size of the book will not, but the, but the thickness of the book will certainly be. It's, there's lots of stuff here. we got lots of stuff. And does it look like the other two? I mean, you know, you're I don't an, know. an older I, I like, person. I, like the, I don't know. I think so. My, my editor seems happy. So you're drawing, I, I, it, I, I, so you're drawing it to look like those to some degree? Yes, yes. Oh, great. Well, you know how much people are excited about, about that. I don't the, think the people anybody, that are fans I don't, I don't of think it. anybody gives a flying fuck, personally, but that's another story. Okay, uh, I do. I, well, thank <laughs> you. You're alone, but, but enjoy the moment. <laughs> you know? With that said, I want to say that when it first came out, when Epiphany came out... You had my, no idea what I was talking about. My first thought was, it's not American flag. Nobody's having sex. It's just a different book, and I, right. I didn't understand it. Well, the idea of a, of, a, of a comic book artist and writer being not being a one-trick pony confuses the fuck out of the comic book audience, doesn't it? <laughs> really well, it confused me. I, w- I didn't know what to make well, of it. I mean, I mean look, the, the comic book business is filled with people who have one idea and keep doing it over and over again. And I'm not that guy. You know, I like lots of different stuff, so I do lots of different stuff. I wish I had the, the, the sensibility to make a great deal of money doing one thing, and I can barely make enough money doing a bunch. So mm. I'm doing what I'm doing. You know, yeah. so, Times so Squared we, was an opportunity to do a Fantasia about my boyhood, which is what it is to a certain extent, an attack on my family, which is what it is to a certain extent, <laughs> a, a, sword and, a sword and sorcery book for people who prefer crime fiction, 
and an odd tribute to Fafner and the Gray Mouser by Fritz Leiber. I don't need to ask you a question about it. You just summed up. That was perfect. Now, that's, a, that's volume one, correct? The third book create, completes a trilogy. The third book is called Hallowed Ground Zero, and it's about the destruction of Times Squared. It's, it, it completes the trilogy. But shouldn't we talk about jazz and music in relation to this, too? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it reflected my, my, my then new, newfound and obsessive interest in jazz. I wanted to do a comic book that felt like a bebop solo, which was, of course, I operate from the perspective that my audience and I are on the same page, which is always wrong. I've always assumed that my interests echo my audience's interests, which is constantly, I'm constantly being disabused of this, and I ignore it and go on anyway, um, because I'm kind of an idiot in that way. But I, I, like, I like doing different stuff, and if I'm really lucky, my audience occasionally catches up with me. If you eventually release this as in one hardcover... It will, um, that, that will eventually happen, yes. Will you include the American flag issue, the special? In all likelihood, yeah. I mean, not the, you know, cattle, yes. Anything else you want to say about, about the upcoming one? No. <laughs> okay. We just have to wait. <laughs> I mean, it, I'm pretty happy with it. I literally just finished the artwork and delivered the artwork to my, to my, 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 my next step, to my letterer, my colorist, Friday. Right now, I'm, I'm not even thinking about it because I've moved on. I'm working on, I'm on script. Uh, for Hey Kids Volume 2, which is called Prophets and Laws. Mm-hmm. Prophets meaning the Old Testament prophets, not the other word. That's why I'm emotionally and mentally engaged right now. Is this still the work you're most proud of? What's that? The Times Square uh, stuff? Yeah. Probably, yeah. Although I'm, I, I'm pretty high on, uh, on, on uh, Hey Kids. Yeah, yeah I love, that's a great story. And I'm looking forward to the next one. So Blackhawk, three-issue miniseries for DC, mm. prestige format. You had previously done covers for earlier Blackhawks. Your version was... I love that book so much. Yeah. Blackhawk, as I've said more than once, was the first comic book I ever stole. Um, uh-huh. I just... I, I, it, it's... I love, I love everything about the Blackhawks. My, I still feel that the three greatest comic book, comic book cover arcs in the, comic book, in the history of comics were Reed Crandall's Blackhawk and military covers, Harvey Kurtzman's covers for Two-Fisted and Frontline, and Dave Johnson's covers for anything. Yep. Oh yeah, I'm crazy about those Dave Johnson covers. Uh, Dave, Dave is the the third greatest comic book artist who ever worked. Uh, Tim Sale says the same thing about his covers. He thinks they're 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 the uh, ones Dave, nobody can Dave, top. Dave, and also, Dave, Dave it should also point out David's funniest dinner companion I've ever had in my life. I've never had anybody draw me, drag me so close to the edge of, of gouting food from my nostrils as I'm so regular. <laughs> he cracks me up. He's one of the funniest, wittiest men I've ever known. Huh, cool. And I'm a tough audience. Now, there wasn't a lot of flying in that Blackhawk, and the continuity stuck for a good while past your issues. So clearly. I love, it, what, it I love what Marty and Rick did. I really do. Uh, okay, so you do follow what I, happened. Oh. I, when they when they completely you know shit the bed with that awful new fifty two version. Um, oh yeah, it's terrible. Oh god. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> like GI Joe done badly. Oh my god. I called Dan and I said I'd love to do this again. I, and I think I've got a way to do it as a, as a contemporary book. And he said we're waiting for the stink to work over. Now of course it's not going to happen because Spielberg had made a noise about wanting to do it. It's never going to happen. I, oh I, okay. Please, do you really really think it's going to happen? He's been talking about that for like 20 years. Oh, yeah, no, actually go, going on, on close over 30, because my first meeting with, uh, with a Hollywood executive was in, in regard to that work that I did on Blackhawk back in 85. Oh, really? Yes. So uh, I, th- cool. I, think, I, think, I think someone showed Spielberg a picture of the war wheel and said, ooh, ooh. 
you know, that kind mm. of shit. So Spielberg's a comic book guy like Lucas is. No, he's not. He has no no understanding of comics whatsoever. Oh, okay. I see. <laughs> no, he's not. He's, I mean, unlike a lot of those guys of that generation, he's not a comic book guy at all. Oh, Spielberg himself. Okay. Now, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I think he knows he's, he's a movie guy, not a comic book guy. In the way that Lucas was both a movie and comic book guy. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I, I get the impression that Spielberg has no familiarity with comics. Oh, I see. That's interesting. Yeah, because you did work in Hollywood. I mean, anec- anecdotally, back in back in the day when when, they, when when heavy metal was doing 1941, uh, I am told by by reliable sources that his understanding of the process was that he suggested to the editor of the book that she should memorize what she's looking at in terms of the set and product and describe it to her artists. Mm-hmm. Whereas whereas working with with Lucas, I came home from the from from the uh, the production unit with 400 stills, all of which looked like IKEA. I have Alex one Blackhawk question um, okay. before going. That first issue that you did, you have an opening. I know that re- reminds me of the the start of Rio Bravo, where there's no sound. You you have no word balloons, and it's just like page after page. I always thought that was really exciting and unexpected. Any comments about that? Well, I had I had read. At that point, I had read The Hunters, which is a, Korean, a novel about, about Korean War air, air combat, and also uh, Keith Robertson's work about the, the, the RAF and the RCF. And I really wanted to, I, I was in, in really enthused with the idea of the nightmare of, of air combat. And I really, and, and, and that combined with the images came from Fred Cooper's stuff. You know Fred Cooper's work? No, um, Fred Cooper was a the guy who created the big head cartoon that Lou Beach did did for years that ended up you know being you know, used in Monopoly. Uh, he was also oh great, yeah, great, and it pops great, up, doesn't it? In yeah. um, Monopoly pops up in this. Yes, uh, but, or in Times Square. In Times Square, but, but you know because he's major domo. The, the Cooper stuff was also a great t- t- uh, typographer and cartographer, and um, that that's where the lion and the and, and the and the eagle come come from. In this case, the hawk. And I really wanted to do, do a, a thing about, you know, the, cause my dreams are almost always boiled down to my, my, my shouting and not being able to scream to be heard. And I really mm-hmm. wanted to achieve that effect. And I was just, I, I really wanted to do something that, that was different and interesting. And I, I thought the material deserved it. Yeah. And I do actually have a version of Black Oak that takes place in, in the contemporary arena that I would love to do somewhere. And, oh, that would uh, be great. But it's not going to happen. They're really giving you beautiful um, uh, books, I mean, in terms of uh, production values and everything. And then you have a falling out with DC over, over labeling, right? Well, that was, yes. <laughs> well, there was collusion going on between Carmine and, uh, and, and Stan about creating a rating system. Oh. And, um, you know, collusion between the companies has always happened, just a matter of what, what they get away with and what they don't. Oh, okay. Um, and um, and I and again, this was at the height of my my my, my alcoholism and, and just complete oblivion. And um, I had that that self righteous blind rage that 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 informed so much of that sort of experience, and hence Black Kiss. And you and you and Alan Moore and Frank Miller and and the sellers of the time tried to put your weight down and and go against the labeling, but it, it wasn't effective, was it? I, I don't think anybody really cared what we what we thought because the, I mean, in the long run. You know, fan favorites were not perceived as having anything really to do with sales at that point. You know, I mean, there's there's less of a the assumption was back in those days, and and it's it's to a certain extent remains true that sales are not dependent on on the the name talent attached. You know, you have books that that sell really well because a guy's doing it, but 
you know, in the long run, I think the assumption is by, by the companies that they can survive any, any fan favorite as long as, long as they've got the, got the material behind the, material, behind the, uh, the audience yeah, or for yeah. the audience. Yeah. Right, that notion that sales went up on Spider-Man after Ditko left. Right, which, which and, I, and I, by the way, they lost me. Yes, I, I, never, I never went back as, as, with the same kind of joy as I had over the, those first. I mean, and again, I mean, I'm, and I'm a fan of Ramita's work, I and mean, I really am, but, but in the same way that I stopped reading EFF when Jack left, I couldn't look at Spider-Man after Ditko left. Yeah. There was, just, there was nothing there about it that interested me in the least. Hmm, interesting. After leaving DC over censorship, you did Black Kiss for Vortex, and that was actually banned in some places, right? Well, it was banned. Yeah, well, yeah, it was because it was disgusting. What <laughs> <laughs> um, can I mean? It was also very, it was also very funny. Yeah, but it was you know I mean going back to what I said I mean comic book fans tend to like cheesecake and titillation with an aversion to uh, to completion. Right. And um, you know I. Uh, I wanted to do a book that would that would literally, you know, be be appalling, and I succeeded, I think, you know, to right. a certain extent. Well, it was interesting. Vampires, transsexuals—I guess we we would say transgender now—completely um, unexpected. And I'm referring to some panels, but it blew everyone away. And when I read it, you know, and I'm seeing Dagmar um, wiping stuff off her cheek, and I'm like, wow, what kind of comic am I reading? But I, I honestly, How dare I? I what was that? <laughs> How dare I? <laughs> <laughs> well, I liked it. I mean, I was like, I'm finishing this today because um, I want to know what happens next. Was that a profitable book for you? Yes. The per page, on a per page basis, the two most profitable products I've ever done commercially were Black Kiss, that original Black Kiss, mm-hmm. and the Nick Fury uh, Wolverine graphic novel that I did with Archie Goodwin back in the yeah. late 80s. Yeah, that's a great one. Uh-huh. I, I love that one. Yeah. Um, but because I, I took an enormous out front page rate on Black Kiss because I assumed it wouldn't sell. Uh-huh. And it sold like crazy. Yeah. The sequel, was it as profitable as the first one? No. No, okay. I, well, I love both. I mean, it, did, it did okay, but, um, but not, it did not, because it, it, it was no longer the outrage that it had been, you know? Yeah, I see. Uh, um, so the character Dagmar, I, I remember watching like a Bob Hope show, and he's yes, doing some yes, comedy with a name. blonde lady named Dagmar. Is, that, is it named yes. after her? Yes. Yes. That's hilarious. Well, they, she she was the the, the the cast member of what was the first night late night talk show called Jerry Lester's Open House, mm-hmm. which I'm too I'm actually too young to remember, but I but I but I, I'm not steep in history of television. This this precedes, uh, you know the, the you know Steve Allen and Jack Parr. I see. Um, and she was just this enormously busty, uh, crypto Swede. I think she was from the Wisconsin, but pretended to be Swedish. I don't. I think Dagmar was her real name, but I loved the name so much that I stayed with it. I just thought it was fascinating. <laughs> well, it really stands out. I mean, when I read that, I'd never read that, heard that name. Then I saw the Bob Hope thing, but that character, how it was more of a character, and that different people could fulfill that role. I just thought that was like just really smart, really interesting. Well, thanks. Howard, we're, we're going to kind of power through the 90s a little bit so that we get everything in. You returned to D.C. Uh, for another kind of revisionist miniseries. That was Twilight. With the fabulous Jose Garcia Lopez. Yes. Oh. If comics was a meritocracy, if only. <laughs> Jose Garcia Lopez would be regarded as the one true king. Wow. He, he, he's so underappreciated. It, it's kind of amazing. Uh, um, it's fun listening to you talk about people like Buckler and, and him that are, are just undervalued. 
Well, Buck, Buckler is undervalued because I think Buckler was a, was a wise guy who, who, who took a, given the opportunity, would, would never allow his skill set to actually work for him. He was always look, looking for a, uh, a quick buck w- way out. Whereas Garcia Lopez is a man of great honor. Buckler's work on jungle action and Deathlock showed what he was capable of when he was when he was trying. I mean, he was he was pretty innovative if he applied himself, which I guess is what you're saying to some degree. Yes, yes. And then you brought back Iron Wolf and also relearn, um, uh, returned to the Fritz Lieber characters uh, too during this. Well, time, working right? with Mike on both of those was a treat. And, and the nice thing about the doing the Liber stuff was it gave it was an opportunity to apologize for how shitty my stuff was on it. You know, it really was. <laughs> Um, I really, I, I, it also reminded me of how much of an influence Liber was on me. Mm-hmm. Now, Magnola, at this point, he's, he hasn't done help. He hasn't become quite what he becomes later on in terms of appreciation, but his, his talent's there by, by then completely, isn't it? Oh, I, I completely agree. Yes. And then you helped form the, is it Bravura? Bravura. Yeah, imprint from Malibu. Who were the ones that did? Starlin was doing that? Walter Simonson, Starlin, Gil Kane, Steve, Steve Grant. It was That's a jolly right. group. And, you, and, and what I you thought did. we were so old and we were so young. It was unbelievable. <laughs> and talk about that for a minute. Like what, what was the idea behind that? It was an opportunity to take advantage of what we mistakenly identified as, as an opening in the market for a new, new line of comics. Um, the line basically tanked. Um, but we all had a great time. I mean, I, I had a, I mean, I mean, Power and Glory was a snide parody of what had been comics in most of the comics in the 90s. Um, you know, what, what, what was coming out of the Image in those days, because Image is an entirely different company today than it was then. And, you know, Image, the, the comparable, Image is like the difference is like between Hyundai and Hyundai in the 80s and Hyundai today, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and now, of course, it's, it's a great IP factory in those days. It was the, just a collection of, of pastiches. And, I, and that was what, what Power and Glory was. And with Power and Glory, you, you got a taste of something that would later on, of course, now be, be routine for you, which was getting criticized uh, on the left for something that was, was, was simply storytelling. Uh, and what I'm talking about is the, the bad joke that the, um, uh, one of the characters tells because that fits with his characterization. Right, exactly. But you, exactly. So which talk is, about know, the, that for the, a minute. Well, I had a character d- define his own character by telling an awful joke. And I was taking the task for telling the joke as opposed to writing a character who would tell such a joke to reveal the, the depths of his character. And that is so utterly specious and fatuous as to embarrass me to share a species. <laughs> and you were, you were a pioneer there because now that's, that's become um, a daily existence for, for anybody that takes any chances at all. Uh, but this was early on. The comic book audience, as I said, is the happiest place the comic book audience can find is in the world of a guy like Chris Claremont, who wraps everything up with a nice warm hot bath, a warm, a warm cup of cocoa and a cookie. <laughs> I'm not that guy, you know. Uh, I'm just, I don't feel comfortable with doing that, but that's what the audience wants. And if the audience wants it badly enough, they know where to find it. They're not going to find it with me. DC also started a, a, a science fiction imprint at, at that point, uh, Helix, and yeah. you were writing Cyberella for that. With Don, that with Don, the, the, the astonishing Don Cameron, who learned a very valuable lesson from that book, which is that as much as he loved comics, he never wanted to be a comic book artist again. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. 
Well, Don, Don is a CG artist, I artist now of extraordinary talent. Yeah. And uh, he, 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 had, he had learned at that point that comics was just not the business that he should be in. I see. He is, he's a phenomenal animator and designer uh-huh. and uh, works very steadily and works well. I mean, he, he's the guy who did the covers of Hey Kids. <laughs> yeah. Which yeah, are not really photographs, but are photo manipulations. Oh, I see. They're, they're completely created in camera. Yeah, that's cool. I've friended him recently, and we've chatted a bit, and he told me he loved assisting you on those stories. He, and he said you guys had a lot of laughs on some of the pages. And uh, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, what a fun time that sounds like. Oh, I, I, Don is one of my favorite people in the world. We've, we've traveled together. <laughs> I mean, we're, we, still, we still hang. Yeah, that's cool. You know, what did they, DC do wrong on that imprint? Why did why did it fail? Because it had the talent. I couldn't say. I, I don't think the I don't think there's an audience for that sort of material anymore. Hmm. I look. I think I, I've said it more than once recently. I think it took me years to really un- fully understand it. But just as co- the comic book co- comics code authority infantilized comics, it also infantilized the audience, and it created an audience that was interested in material that was just challenging enough. Yeah. And yeah, in fact, cha- you've said, you've said it, uh, current comics are basically uh, young adult fiction. Yes. And young adult fiction using the model of the, of the Roadrunner Coyote as the paradigm, mm-hmm. you know, because what you've got is, is, is a, is corporately owned characters and even non-corporately owned characters involved in an endless chase without closure. So let's let's talk for a few minutes about your time away from comics. It's mm-hmm. around this time that you 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 go you go TV Hollywood on us. Well, the reason I moved to California in the first place is I realized, and the day I moved to the day before I turned thirty-five, that I realized that I had no prospects whatsoever. That Flag, as big a deal as it was for me, had left me as a, a cult figure. I was a I was I was someone who, who Cognoscenti knew, but was not known on a, on a vast or wider scale. Hmm. And that I was going to potentially get as old as I am today, and I had to do something about that. And the truth is, I came out to California to attempt to use the, the, the cachet that Flag gave me to get into the movie business and ended up in television, for which I am forever grateful. Mm-hmm. If I had the CV that I had then, and I was 40 today, I'd have a seven-figure development deal with the studios. But back then, no one had any idea what to do with a comic book talent. Comic books back then were regarded as a genre as opposed to a medium. And now, of course, since the comic book business has become what it is in the mainstream world, they are, they are, they, that, that, that has become a truth, that comic books are a genre today. You know, we, we owe the existence of comics, mainstream comics, to Jack Kirby inventing Stan Lee, and Stan Lee, uh, you know, cheerleading the existence of comics for, you know, for, for 50 years. Hmm. But what those comics that, that ultimately got cheerleaded in were superhero comic books. Right. And when I started looking for work in television, I was perceived as a comic book guy dabbling in television. So I was giving comic book type stuff to work on. I never worked on a show that I'd watch. Mm-hmm. But I did the best work I could for the people for whom I was working. And I'm very grateful for the work I had because it gave me a pension and it gave me health coverage. As banal right. and as, as boring as that may sound, at my age, it is a blessing. Oh, yeah, for sure. So you still get the health coverage from working. Oh, fuck yeah, man. Well, I mean, look, I, I've been on Medicare for three years, but I also have ancillary coverage from the Writers Guild of America, and I have a yeah. pension. Oh, that's awesome. Thank Good you. for you. Thank you. Th- thank you, God. I don't believe that. There you go. <laughs> and did, did working on the television, is there any way in which that had a positive impact or 
a negative impact on your your writing, on your art, anything about when you came back to comics? Was it was it different because of your twelve years in in television? Oh, absolutely. Um, it had a very positive effect on it, in that it, it made me understand servicing the narrative in a more specific way. Uh, it made me understand the the relationship of space to time, and I think it just it may be a better writer. Oh, that's interesting. So what, uh, what did you do? Um, what did you, do? Uh, did you, you worked on the 1990 Flash TV show a little, is that correct? I did. That was my first show. Uh-huh. I, they got me very cheap because my agent sold me down the river. My st- I started as a story editor on that show. My last job, I was an uh, executive producer on, a, on, on Mutant X, one of the worst television shows ever made. Not the worst <laughs> one I've ever worked on. Uh-huh. The worst one I ever worked on was the worst television show ever made. It was called Earth Final Conflict. Okay. Uh, which was which was a a, a a television series that should have been a novel about bad television. It was so dreadful. Um, <laughs> I mean, no, seriously, this was it was execrable. And I was only fired from it because I was a counterfire. One set of producers demanded they fire one one writer who is the as, to this day has never had anything produced, and I got fired and was immediately rolled over into into a development position with the same company. Uh. But um, but I worked on utter unwatchable shit. <laughs> That's amazing. But you got such good benefits out of this. Good I did. And, and again, I, and I'm grateful for those benefits. I'm quite serious. Yeah. So then um, you yeah. came back to comics first as a writer on American Century for Vertigo and with mm-hmm. Mighty Love. You were drawing again, right? Mighty Love was the first thing I, I wrote and drew. I sold that a month after I got fired from my last television job. Uh-huh. And again, I, I'd been away from comics for a long enough time that, that, that the book sank like a stone. I'm really proud of that work. I'm very happy with that work. I'd like to have to see it print and print again from Image sometime sooner than later. They, I'm, really I'm holding my copy in my hand right now. I'm really proud of that work. You know? Yeah, it's almost like uh, when Harry met Sally. But well, with, it, uh, it derives, what you mean is you've got mail. And, and you've got mail, it's based on the same thing, which is something called The Shop Around the Corner, mm-hmm. um, which is a Hungarian comedy, which in turn was made into a film with Jim, Jimmy Stewart, and I forget who, Margaret, someone, I forget, Margaret Sullivan. Margaret Sullivan. And a musical called She Loves Me, which originally starred Daniel Massey and, oh my God, what's her name? The woman who played Miss Pipperidge in that production. Oh, oh God, I hate when this shit happens. But most recently, there was a version of it with Laura Bernanti, who was playing, who plays Supergirl's mom, I gather, mm-hmm. uh, who is now playing Eliza Doolittle on Broadway, opposite uh, Zach Levi, who right. played the uh, the male lead, who I'm, on the basis of that production, I'm, I'm in love with this guy. I love yeah. him. I really That's love cool. him. Uh-huh. So uh, yeah, that is lineage. That's his provenance. Uh-huh. And I could see Mighty Love being like a Netflix series too, or something. Like well, that, that was it. Was originally it was written as a pilot. As a pilot, there you go. Oh, yep. that's interesting. Because when I read it, I felt like this feels TV to me. For some reason, I am karmic. I obviously lost a bet in some karmic way that uh, I have not been able to get any luck with tra- any traction of getting my stuff turned into film. Well, they should because they, honestly, yeah, you, your lips to God's ear. Back to that God, I don't believe in. All right, back uh, to the, let's see if we, we can satellite this through the different gods back to the... Let, let us pray, go. again, to that yeah. God I don't believe. Maybe let's we keep constantly praying to this and, fucking uh, God. Or a seance. Let's do a seance. So, <laughs> um, so was City of Tomorrow influenced by your work on Stars My Destination or not at all? You know, uh, no, not really. I mean, not C- really. City, okay. of Tomorrow, City of Tomorrow was, for me, a metaphor about gay marriage. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Read it again, you'll see what I'm talking about. I mean, I've always liked the idea of the concept of, of a culture growing to, to sexualize its machinery. Mm-hmm. And the idea further, it's more influenced by Cordwainer Smith. In Smith's world, animals were elevated to the state of humanity, but maintained as second-class citizens. 
so that humanity could have something to look down upon. Mm, mm-hmm. And I really wanted to play with that. And also the fact that, um, you know, we, we live in a world of sex dolls. Yeah. And I really wanted to play with that. Sex dolls, do they provide that with your pension? No, I'm married. <laughs> well, that's good. Good answer. You can make, you can make, make whatever you want of that answer and do whatever you want with it, and, and it, it's on you to be ashamed of yourself right now. <laughs> it, now trust me. It would, it would, you want digression? You're asking for trouble. Please go on. <laughs> <laughs> so Legend with uh, Russ Heath, yep. it was a retelling of the Hugo Danner Gladiator right. story. Again, as I said earlier, I have no idea why it was changed from Gladiator to Legend, but, uh, but I thought right. Russ did an absolutely bang-up job. I love what he did. It was great. Yeah. Were you guys friends? Or Not really, but I, I've known Russ since I was a kid. Steve Mitchell and I stood behind him as he inked the, the splash page, that double-page spread of Easy's first tiger uh, with a brush on this rickety drawing table that was, I mean, Russ is a god. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a big, I was a huge fan. I always, Oh boy, him. his work in the like early seventies on, on uh, DC's war books, mm-hmm. every splash pay, every double page spread is just unbelievable. I, I mean, I, I can't think of anything that compares to it. Look, he taught Cuba how to do lighting and that's not a joke. It's true. Wow. So in uh, 2006, you did hot girl and that was mm-hmm. written by Walter Simonson, right? Was that a fun project? Because you guys had known each other for a long time. We've known each other. Yeah, we, we, it was a gas to do. Uh huh. Um, and you know, it was, it was. I mean, it's a character. I mean, I, I'm of the mind that nobody should draw Hawkman or Hawk Girl except Joe Kubert. Right. So I, I have a lot of apologies to make, but that's just the way it is. I had a good time doing it, but I, I was offered a seductive offer from Marvel, and I took it. Because you did other superhero stuff. You did Punisher. Wolverine. Mar- I mean, Aubrey Citizen brought me over to Marvel. I have no idea what, but Aubrey, not, Aubrey as I, I sold son, Aubrey recently, he's a son I never knew I deserved. Uh-huh. And um, he brought me over there and I did Blade for 12 issues working with the, with the astonishing. Mark Guggenheim is the most writer-friendly artist I've ever worked with. He uh-huh. understands how to, how to call out shots. I worked with Matt. I did, just did a bunch of stuff from Marvel at that point. And um, that dried up around, I think it's early of 2012, and I haven't worked for them since, except you know, intermittently little bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. I think I aged out, and nobody told me. Oh, uh, okay. I was told I was told in January of 2012 that I'd have a job in April, and I'm, I'm, I just looked at my watch. I'm not holding my breath. When you I, say I've aged, aged out, out of both, I'm, basically I've aged out of both Marvel and DC. Aged you did you, like, you did you something like, for DC recently, though, didn't you? I mean, the yeah, I wrote, Newsboy I wrote Legion, some rough and ready stuff. But you know, no, no one. No one at DC or Marvel are calling me to offer me a, a run on, on a book. The whole question of being aged out. So does that in mechanism mean that a new editor is now there and now this new editor is kind of like maybe a little bit younger than the other one, so they kind of don't understand? I don't think any editor – look, I'm older than most of the editors of Marvel and DC's parents. Right. And nobody wants, nobody wants to yell at anybody who reminds them of their dad. Yeah, there you go. I see what and you're I saying. So that, that's how I, I, I certainly wouldn't. So new you know, people I'd, I'd rather in. work with someone, someone who reflects my own my own contemporaneous sensibility. Right. So and, and, I'm, and, and I look. I mean, I have. I mean, the reality is, I'm I'm actually very well regarded by by the profession in terms of delivering work on on a professional basis. Right. But right now, the 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 audience regards me as a as a an, an, a truly horrible human being. So that 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 tends, tends to filter down to young editors who don't know me. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know. Um, yeah. There you go. It, it, I mean, again, I'm. I, I'm perfectly happy with the life I live today. I mean, I am, I created my own reality and I'm very successful at this. I mean, wh- whatever bitterness I have, I'm responsible for. <laughs> the stuff you were doing for Marvel at that, that point was, it was a lot of it was not all of it. Cause you did the Phantom Eagle, but a lot of it was superhero stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, like I did, did six years to run on Wolverine with Guggenheim, which was a gas. I love doing that. Um, I did 12 issues of blade. 
I did like 16 or 17 issues of Punisher War Journal. And the Phantom Eagle stuff was a gas as well. And I did some Avenger stuff with Brian. I did some of my own. Um, and it was all a great deal of fun. Um, but but it's not it's not primary in my skill set. I mean, you know, in the middle of all this, I also did a Western for Disney Italia. It goes to called American Century West. Oh, yeah. Um, Horses. You know, which, you know, I'm very proud of and very few people have seen. Right. I, I have that. I like it a lot. One quick question. This is actually kind of goes to Marvel again, but it's actually from the 80s. You mentioned it, the Wolverine, Nick Fury. That was written by Archie Goodwin, I think. Yeah. Um, how, Wrote it, I, I penciled it in 1985 and inked it in 1989 because it took Archie four years to write it. Okay. So tell us how it was working with Archie on that work. It was a gas. I love doing that. I mean, uh, it, again, it was doing it Marvel style, mm-hmm. which was something that I'm not happy with. I'm not fond of that. I prefer working from full script. It's one of the reasons why I left Talk Girl because I didn't, I, I, Walter works Marvel style. I didn't like doing that anymore. I just really oh. wanted full script. But Archie, it was very simpatico. I had a great deal of room to play. I, again, I'm very proud of the work that I did. I mean, in retrospect, you, know, you look back at work that you've done, and you always, you can always you know, tinker and play with it. it just rec- it was just recently reprinted in some in one of these these huge anthologies they're doing, and um, and there's, there's a lot of cringeworthy stuff in there. But I, you know, y- you learn from your work. You know, you keep working. Yeah, I love that. I mean, story. Talk, I mean, I'm I'm 48 years in for Christ's sake. You know. Wow. So talking about the superheroes, back to that, for, including Wolverine, um, um, you described uh, comics uh, at some point as being about liberal ends achieved by fascist means. And I, I yep. assume you're mainly talking about superheroes when you're talking right. about well, that, that. that. Look, but the, no matter how you work on it, mainstream comic books these days are superhero comic books, with very yeah. few exceptions. And yes, I believe they are liberal ends achieved by fascist means. So it, is that... Batman. Is, I mean, Bat, Batman, is, as I've said more than once, is a rich guy who had a bad day when he was eight. Okay? <laughs> and from that bad day, he has justified a vigilante's experience, the, the narcissism of which, if you actually stop for a moment to think about, is staggering. Yeah. You know, I was, I was scheduled to do and then had canceled out from under me a panel at, at, at a convention in New York City a couple of years ago about the, the, the spiritual relationship between Bruce Wayne and Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And I stand yeah. on that relationship. Yeah, tell us that. Batman, I, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, Batman is about a guy who, you know, after that bad day, decided that that he was judge, jury, and executioner, and instead of investing those those billions of dollars in the Wayne Foundation in in either politics or the private sector to fight poverty where it actually exists, he dresses up like a bondage freak and spends billions on these tools and toys to beat the living shit out of people he knows are bad by the way they look. Hmm. Okay, it's a 15-year-old boy's idea of the world, of how the world works, right. embraced by 55-year-old men. A ball gag would complete his outfit, basically. I'm there, babe. You know, <laughs> and you know, there's a butt plug happening there somewhere. But, uh, but, but we are dealing, as I say, we're dealing with a 15-year-old boy's idea of adult behavior, embraced by 55-year-old men. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. And look, when I when I saw the trailer for Brightburn, yeah, that's what I suspect Superman would be like if he ever showed up with fucking Krypton. Right. So in, in your stuff that you've done in recent times, you've, you've met a lot of resistance and resistance people are very... Them, but resistance, yes, but not resistance from people who've actually read the material. Right. That, that, no, and we're going to get to that. The arrogance of presumption has interfered with my, with my, with, with my material. That's where it's at. Right. Well, that's what I want to ask you about in comparison to something else, which is, is you've gotten called ridiculously we with called Odeus. fascist we and everything Odeus, else. You you get called names uh, and and um, anti-Muslim and anti-this and anti-trans and, and different things, and it's it seems unfair. 
and you've commented about that that mentality, and we're going to talk about it in a few minutes. Mm-hmm. But uh, Frank Miller gets similarly characterized. Do you think it's the same thing, or is there room for legitimate criticism? I think depending I, upon I, the material, I, I, I'm not seeing what Frank got criticized for, so I can't speak to that. I have okay. no idea. Okay. Um, All right. I do know that in my case, um, as I said on the piece I posted on Medium a week ago, that I finally come to realize that the attacks on, on divided states of hysteria came from people who did not read the book or, having read the first issue, presumed that like all comic books, so, as it is in the first issue, it will be in the next in the next 20. I write characters who change. Had they stuck around with the book, they would have realized that the character they were pro- had problems with was both the moral focus of the was, was the moral focus of the book, the heroine of the book, and ultimately the romantic interest of the lead. Okay, but but they they impo- they assumed that a man of my age, of my social circumstance, could not and would not do such a character. So I'm I'm operating on, on being being victimized by assumptions and presumptions, by fatuous assumptions and presumptions. Okay, mm-hmm. secondly. I've come to realize that the objection to that cover that we ultimately had to censor, because yeah. they didn't want the collateral damage of, of attacking my publisher that was attacking me, was based not on the act depicted, but by the victim of the act depicted. That the, the, credu- the credulity of believing that I would encourage such an act, that the depiction of an act is akin to the encouragement of the act, or the act itself, is first of all specious and bullshit-based. Right. Secondly, as I said in this piece from Medium, that it was because of who the victim was. Had, had, had the lynching victim been a Jew, there, nobody would have given a flying fuck. I guarantee it. Right. It is that victim culture attitude operating in, in, in the comic book universe, combined with a level of performative mor- morality, which ignores truth in the name of feelings. Yes. Feelings are not facts. Mm-hmm. Were you and surprised by some of your colleagues' reactions? Surprised, disappointed, and they're all dead to me. And besides which, they're cowards, because not a one of them has ever come up to say a word to me in person. Hmm. So you've, you've not had a con- an honest conversation Never. with anybody about, about this? Never. Amongst the people you worked with? Never. Oh. No, these, these people are chicken shits. Mm-hmm. And they are dead to me. What about image? How do you think they handled it? I don't think they handled it as well as they might have. I think uh, I'd like. In retrospect, I should not have allowed that book to be to be censored. It was a mistake on my part. Hmm. And further, and I, and I will say furthermore, that I think they're gun shy about me as a talent right now. Which is the disappointment I experience in not having Hey Kids Comics being being selected as as one of their twenty five that they, they would consider the best of the year hmm. really insults me some because I'm pretty right. proud of that book. It is. It is a great book. I will see things online where it says Chaikin apologizes, and I, I I read Image's statement. Is there any place where you actually? I mean, you put it in some context, but I didn't hear where you apologized, nor should was, you. Have. I did not apologize at all. That's that's what I thought. My, I'm my, glad my we're contrition, getting that my out. My contrition there. was for the, for the for the shit thrown at them, not at me. Tell me what megaphonics and identitarians are. I know megaphonics. I know, but identitarians, I can tell you, identitarians okay. are, are the, they're, but identitarians live on both sides. These are people who function with perspective of filtering their entire lives through, through identity politics. On the right, you've got crypto Nazis or Nazis, let's call it spade to spade. On the left, you've got people who are gatekeepers of a, of a level of performative morality, uh, who are 
who encourage diversity, but their diversity is extremely specific. Right. And who encourage inclusion, but are very exclusive in their, in their, in their inclusivity. Yes. The, the, there, there's, there are a series of proscriptions and prescriptions as to what is and isn't acceptable. I personally feel that contempt prior to investigation is the bane of the, of, of the current culture. Right. You know, are, are the, is this guy in the Nazi right, right accusing me of being a, a neutered butler of, of the social justice warrior left? Are the, is, this, is this schmuck on the right correct in describing me as odious, a, a demon in a human skin suit? Who's got this? <laughs> what, what kind of bullshit is this? Right. You know, nobody's actually reading my stuff. They're simply <clears throat> imposing their own moral judgment on imagery and drawing conclusions, not based on facts, but on feelings. That's right. You know, Howard, I don't know if I told you, I'm, I'm actually in my day job, I'm a divorce lawyer. So I hear things Lucky like guy. demon in a skin suit, in a demon suit all the time. Is that a, a current new one that people are throwing around a lot lately? <laughs> well, I, I do get them first, I think. How long have you been working as a divorce lawyer? Since 1991. Oh, Jesus. My God. The bile you must put up with on a daily basis. Yes, I. And bear I in mind, I've been, divorced, called, I've been divorced three times, so believe me, I know. I know the shitstorm you're living in. I, I know we keep track of people like you. <laughs> Just in case. <laughs> I thought "demon in the skin suit" was a circumcision reference. Maybe I'm wrong. Oh, watch your watch your step there, Buster. <laughs> <laughs> so you said that you had come to understand how the Eloy could drive someone over to the side of the Morlocks. I just want to say that I, I hope that never happens. I do too, but I mean, I look. I am. I remain an iconoclast and a great believer in in, a, in finding a, a language of common ground. I will not make I will not make peace or common ground with a bunch of fucking Nazi cocksuckers. That ain't happening. But at the same time, I live in a state of moral shame over my side of the aisle and its inability to get past its own prejudices as well. Yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, one yeah. is cultural and the other is blood. So I think, I think we're in a lot more danger from the Nazis than we are from identitarians. So but, two quick books I want to talk about. Midnight of the Soul. I mm-hmm. like that a lot. Nobody and else did. No one else. T- I, it's, it's like it. I don't think anyone read it except me. No, I, no. I don't mean, want to be unfair about no, it. No, I know. I mean, it, it, it's, it's the only thing I've done in the image that has that is ne- never been gotten to the black. I have no yeah. idea. I have no idea. I'm, again, it's, I'm very proud of the work that I've done in the past, in, in the past 25 years. I think it's a, it's a terrifically solid book, a tribute and pastiche to a kind of film that people love. And yet it found no traction. Do the editorial people at, at Image come there to are no anywhere? Come... Image, Image has no editorial oversight. <laughs> so none at all. So nobody says to you, can you maybe not put nigger and faggot both on the same page? No. I, have, I hire my own editor. Oh, Image do you has, really? Image, yeah. Well, I, I, I earnestly believe that editors are an extremely valuable component of creating comics. Okay, I know, I know that 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 that's gonna that must sound like home. Oh, really, you mean that? Yes, I do. Um, and talk a my, little my bit. My editor is someone who I respect deeply, whose every idea costs me money and time. He more than justifies his existence. Is that common practice at Image to do that? I have that, no or clue. Is... I have I have no idea. Hmm, that's your thing. Um, and then let's talk about uh, Satellite Sam just for a couple of minutes, because yes. mm-hmm. that seemed like a Howard Chaikin book that actually isn't written by Howard Chaikin. Well, Matt has often described it as Howard Chaikin fan fiction, so I suppose so. Ah, was it fun to do? Yes. Uh, basically, it's, it, it operates in a world in which I, I'm very familiar and about material I'm, I'm really fascinated by the 
the, the, the societal suppression of sexual behavior in the 1950s is something that fascinates me and always has. Right. What people actually acted at and what, and what they, they were, were letting the world to believe they were doing really appeals to me as, as, a, as a, source, a source material. So, yes. And it was great to do a black and white book of that era as well. Yeah, it was great. The art was, it, I, I thought it was a really strong art from you. I, I liked it a, an awful lot. I think we both, Alex and I both were excited to, to hear you talk about Hey Kids. So, yeah, Alex? I loved Hey Kids. I guess the names have been changed to protect the innocent. And there are only, have you read the trade? Yes. All right. Cause yeah. the, the essay in the trade really lays it out. There, there are only two direct avatars, really. You know, obviously Sid and Bob are who they are. There's no question about it. There's no, there's no, I can't wink at that. But everybody else is an avatar. Everybody else is a blend and a mix. Right. Uh-huh. And, and that's the thing, right, is there are blends, but some of the blends, I felt like there was a similarity between Brian Callahan and Joe Manili. Like, I felt well, like... Well, yeah, absolutely. Like, there was maybe a 51% blend. Would you say that? Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you pull good numbers out of your ass. Okay. I'm only I do. That. I'm good like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. It's fun. You know, Laszlo Fabin. I could see that feeling like Alex Toth. Like, I felt some Alex Toth vibe there. Yeah, maybe. maybe, maybe, right? Maybe. I'm maybe, being, maybe, I'm maybe. being, I'm being, look, I'm being flirtatious and coy now. It's really adorable. There's nothing I like it. Man of my I like it. The cheeks, are, your <laughs> okay. cheeks are turning red and we're kind of, Oh yeah. I feel like Bugs Bunny in one of those drag cartoons. <laughs> you know? But honestly, I loved reading it. And again, you saw, I made a post about the dreamer. Jim recommended that to me the other day. And so I read it because it, it does kind of go through a biographical sense of some comic things, but this it, is, it is the most self-serving line of bullshit. Ever. But it's I a mean, really <laughs> self-serving line. Yeah. And this though, I love how you jump back and forth in time because it puts things almost, it's like a four dimensional story of these people that are largely based in true events, much more based in true events than other books that try to do the same thing. Tell us what started you off on this journey and how did you get started on this? Well, I really wanted to do the second volume of of Divided States of Hysteria immediately because I was so fucking pissed and I was dissuaded from this. (laughs) And and this was second in the line. This was up next. Mm. And I think what Image was expecting was something a bit more madman in the comic book business in a kind of a linear fashion. I'm not sure anybody up there really saw where I was going with this. This was a result of, I've always regarded myself as the bridging link between the generation that preceded mine and mine. Mm-hmm. And I spent, I, I, all those guys I worked for talked endlessly. Right. I paid attention and I listened and I wrote shit down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, great. you know, as, as I've said more than once, there are things in the book that are absolutely not true. Right. But that are anecdotal, that it needed to be included because they're part of the legend. Yeah. I don't think anybody ever hung anybody out a window. I think that's just... It's just not true. It's Too good a, rumor, a story not right? to tell. Because that's a rumor, yeah. but, but it's a it, fun it's rumor. It's just one too. of those apocrypha that you have to include just because it's so much a part of the language. Yeah. It really is. The second volume, which yeah. is six issues, which is really about how important that brief blip of EC Comics was to my generation, mm-hmm. is much more linear in the sense that it's six issues. Each issue covers approximately five years from 1950 to 1980. Mm-hmm. And many of the characters in the first first volume are in there. There are a lot of new characters. And it's much more linear in its direction, but it also lays out anecdote, apocrypha, and why EC was as important as it was, as invisible as it ultimately became, and how that importance was ultimately ultimately wrecked mm-hmm. by a by a generational shift. Mm. That, that's, and, that's, that's that's, and, and the third volume, should there be one, 
Well, we've got the impact of that generational shift. I mean, obviously, we're all comic history fans or enthusiasts, like you phrase it, but I'm so excited about the next volume. And I highly encourage readers to check this out. It's funny, you know, just kind of reading through some of this stuff, 51% Glacier and Gelbart. I mean, it feels like... Well, yeah. Yeah. It feels like Siegel yeah. and Schuster, you know? Yeah. Okay. Um, I love the names. I love how you these alternate names you come up with. I mean, for the superheroes, like Sea Sultan. Please do an issue of Sea Sultan for us because <laughs> I, w- I will read that. I mean, I love Submariner, but I love Sea Sultan. And uh, our pal Percy. I mean, I don't know how you come up with this. You are so creative. I have to thank my editor for that because a lot of that was his throwing it around. Oh, really? That's you know, that, that, that was a lot of back and forth between the two of us, yes. Yeah, um, and uh, so much fun about how you had, uh, I think, the Ray Clark character talk to the Tom Hollenbeck character like, look, you're swiping from me, and you have no idea you're even doing it. And then the Hollenbeck is just like, well, I don't know what you mean, and uh, so clueless. Like, some of that young generation could be so clueless sometimes. I think every little tidbit in here, everyone needs to read this, because it's just so apt. And the scene with Ted Whitman and the uh, modern art where they swipe his panels from uh, the comics. Oh, you, you mean know, the Guggenheim? Yeah, yeah, right. Such a like a Russ Heath kind of moment. And I just find that the moments in here, even if the moments don't exactly match the actual person it happened to, they're so true. Look, as I've said, a lot of it is fiction, but it's all true. Yeah, that's right. That, Hers- that, that, that's what it boils down to. Um, Hershenson and Berkowitz. I mean, I love these names. They're just so funny. Dan Fleischer. I love how you explain an artist responsible for the form's language a publisher who's just another asshole. I mean, you're so funny. I could read this multiple times and get a different laugh out of it each time. Thanks. I'm, I'm very grateful. I mean, it, I mean, if the fact is right now at my age, what I'm interested in is my legacy. Right. And, and with any luck, the, the minute I stop breathing, this book will be, be, be discovered and say, oh, that's what he meant. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. Let's, let, let, let's avoid pissing on his grave for another week. <laughs> no, no, I'm throwing flowers on yours, man. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say so. <laughs> did, did Image really not include this as one yes, of Yes, they did not. Well, that has to be carryover from the other project. I assumed as much. I assumed they, they were keeping their head down and gun shy of fear. You know, that's my guess. Because comic fans, I mean, but anyone still, actually, comic it, fans it, should it, love it, this. It, yeah, it does. It hurts. It really does. I mean, my, I mean, whatever feelings I have left, and I've only got one, but it's a really good one, um, is somewhat diminished. Yeah, I was disappointed. Mm-hmm. So what, you know, what, I mean, I was, I was, I was putting together an uh, extrapolating from a piece I posted on the uh, on the Alex Toth website, the fan, mm-hmm. fan Facebook page, that I was going to publish. Then I, I decided to hold off on it because the Eisner Awards were announced, mm-hmm. and the only reason that at this point I've, I've gotten so used to being decades of indifference that if any, anybody should actually come out with actual praise in an award, I'd be I'd be such untrusting and suspect. And the only possible outcome of positivity to come out of being nominated for an Eisner at this point is knowing that Will would be spinning on his rotisserie, mm-hmm. you know, but I'm comfortable and yet bitter at the idea that I'm never going to be acknowledged in my own lifetime. And when happens. was the last time you were nominated for an Eisner and, and excluding never. the, uh, never, 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 never. And it's, and it's too late now, babe. <laughs> your, your name was nominated. I think I was nominated for a Hall of Fame about uh, six, seven years ago. No, I'm talking about Neon Visions. Oh, yeah, that's right. But I didn't write that. That was uh, you, that, you didn't write that. That was, that was Brandon Costello saying nice things about me. That was going to be my 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 last question to you. What was it like to have to read a book that that went into that in depth about? Did you did you find yourself nodding your head it or saying, cring- "Oh no"? It was no. cringeworthy. It made it made it, it embarrassed <laughs> me terribly. I read it on an airplane. Okay, 
And I'm, I'm serious. I'm, I'm, I'm flying home. I, I'd gotten a copy where I was, when I was, I guess it was, I was flying home from New York and I'm reading on an airplane and my, my seatmate looks over it and, you know, and, lo- and looks at it and says, why are you reading, you're reading a book about, yeah, I said, yeah, it's about me. And he looked at me like I was fucking nuts. And I was just like, oh, God, I, had, I should. Why didn't I keep my fucking mouth shut and just conceal the book? You know, but yeah, I mean, I, I thought Brandon was right on the money. I, th- I have a feeling that Brandon got me at, at, at having lost a bet. And um, so, I, so he stuck with me. Um, but, you know, he's, he was very kind to me. And I thought his, his take on the material was flattering, you know. But again, I don't flatter easily. It's a sort of academic book on uh, on Howard's works, and it goes into great detail about individual chapters. Uh, there's a long chapter on uh, on Blackhawk. Chip Delaney had lunch with Brandon this past week. He was in Baton Rouge, and Chip posted the, the covers of that one and conversations. So I'm curious to see what Chip's going to take away from this. You know, <laughs> uh, it's not, it's, I mean, the nice thing about Facebook is you get reacquainted with old friends, and the sad thing about Facebook is you get occasionally acquainted with old friends. You know, it's, uh, it's both. Yes, that's actually right. So, any besides volume, the next volume of Hey Kids, and then the what's not going to be called? You're changing the name to Oligarchy. I'm thinking I'm going to call it Treason. <laughs> Just get but right it, to the point. Right to the point. And of course, Alan Ground Zero with by, with Times Squared. But you are you could call it odious. Yeah, but that but the audience has no only only that one guy knows what it means. You have to really. <laughs> right. I mean, I've I, I've gained nothing by overestimating my audience for thirty five fucking years. Why, why continue that particular trend? Huh. Um, no, I I mean I what, what 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 I've got next going on. Let's see, I've got the sequel, Divided States, is written. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, kids, volume two. I'm a third of the way into issue five and a, a very rough first draft. This version is going to go to my editor this week, so he can beat me up on it and help me out with. Uh, what I really mean. Beyond that, I'm not really planning. I got nothing. You know. Um, I mean, something will happen. Uh, something will occur to me. I'll, 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 something will annoy me enough to try to do something else. So, but you think yeah. it'll be an image? You're not. You're not going back to the. Uh... Unless image dumps me, I guess so. I mean, nobody at DC wants me. Mar- I mean, I, there's nothing there for me. I mean, we we are looking at an implosion. You know, sooner or later, the firing at, at DC of the var- of the various talents they let go really demonstrates the fact that I've been saying for some time that comic books no longer really are necessary to the, to the mass market any more than, than Disney needs new, new, Mickey, new Mickey Mouse nor, or Warner Brothers needs new Bugs Bunny. The characters that exist now and exist in, 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 the, in the public consciousness in the cultural sense. The, the fact that, they, that, that $1.2 billion has been earned by, uh, by, by this, this new movie really demonstrates this. They don't need comics anymore. Yeah, DC firing Churiello is yeah. just mind-boggling to me. And I, and, and my, my, I think they fired him because they didn't really know what he did for a living. They, didn't, they really didn't know. I mean, look, I mean, I'm, every year I know is my last year in the business. And how long has that been true? Uh, probably since, since, uh, <laughs> since mid-90s. Wow. Okay. So I'm okay. I'm pretty comfortable with my own, my own insignificance. I'm comfortable with my, my, own, my own position in the universe. And I am the architect of my own adversity. I created every problem I have, I created. So uh, go with God. The well, you are always welcome at Comic Book Historians because you post just such great long pieces, and, and we enjoy everything you ever post. That's very mm-hmm. kind of you to say, and I'll continue to do so. And if I can annoy any more people, then you come up with some more. I'll, I'll piss them off, too. Please, do it. I love it. <laughs> All right. Gentlemen, thank it. you so much.
Thank you, Howard. You, um, this has been an awesome podcast interview with His Eminence. Uh, a prince. Uh, that, <laughs> so, that melancholy Dane. Here he is. <laughs> the melancholy Dane, the prince of comics, Howard Chaikin. He says he stands on the shoulders of giants, but he is a giant himself as well. And we'll be remembered as such in the future. And Hopefully not soon, though. Keep me alive. Please. Come on. <laughs> no, don't bury me yet, motherfucker. <laughs> and we're excited about your next project. I can't wait for Hey Kids Comics Part 2, 3, 4, and 5. Please keep up your great work. Jim and I loved having you on today. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks yeah, for having real me. I'm, I'm, really, I'm incredibly grateful, and I take nothing for granted. Thanks, guys. Stay warm and dry. Be All well. Right, Bye too. now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.